Welcome to ID the Future, a podcast about intelligent design and evolution. Welcome to ID the Future. I'm Andrew McDermott. Today, my guest is Michael Newton Keyes, author of the new book, Unbelievable, Seven Myths About the History and Future of Science and Religion, released this week from Intercollegiate Studies Institute Press. Michael Keyes is a senior fellow at Discovery Institute and a former Fulbright scholar. After earning a PhD in the history of science from the University of Oklahoma, he won research grants from such organizations as the National Science Foundation and the American Council of Learned Societies. Keyes currently serves as lecturer in the history and philosophy of science at Biola University and is on the board of directors of Ratio Christi, an alliance of apologetics clubs on college campuses. Mike, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Andrew. You know, that description reminds me I'm having more fun than it, than it should be legal for a middle-aged man to be having. This is just fun stuff to cover, I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, it's great when you, you can uh, get into that sweet spot of work and pleasure and pursue those interests that really get the heart beating. Yeah, because I taught this stuff for 25 years, and finally I had the chance to write it up and to make it more accessible. Wow. And it's, it's all the more believable uh, to play on the title because of, uh, of that 25 years of hard work you put into teaching. Yeah, I taught astronomy, biology, and history and philosophy of science and how, to, how they all fit together. Wow. Well, to the topic today, we've heard the story a number of times before. Science and religion have been at war for centuries. They're incompatible claim science popularizers like TV personality Bill Nye and astronomer Neil deGrasse Tyson. And the faster we can ditch our religious views in favor of cold, hard science, the better off we'll be. But it turns out that when you take a closer look at the history of science and religion, you discover that these stories are closer to myth than a reflection of reality. Keyes is now responding to this campaign with a book that explores seven of the most popular and pernicious myths about science and religion. James Hannum, author of The Genesis of Science, puts it this way in his endorsement for the book. Not content to knock down the myths about the alleged conflict between science and religion, Mike Keyes shows where they came from and how science popularizers like Carl Sagan have used them to further their own agendas. Using a wide range of sources, including textbooks and television shows, Keyes explains how these myths got into the bloodstream of our culture. So, Mike, to start off, why did you decide to write this book, and why at this particular time? After teaching my students and finding out how many of them actually swallowed and believed these myths, and then how, you know, when the, the lights turned on, they're going, oh, you mean... You mean people in the Middle Ages didn't think the earth was flat? Those, they weren't ignorant Christians. There was actually good reasons in even medieval times to know that the earth was spherical. Yeah, that's right. And the story of otherwise is um, a great way to make Christianity look anti-science. So, yeah, after encountering lots of myths, I decided you know, I need to collect you know, the, the, the ones, like the top ten list. Actually, it ended up just being seven, but... I was looking at which ones really have had the most influence and that continue to get recycled over and over and came up with a list of seven. And how long did it take you to compile that list or was it brewing for years? Uh, this thing's been brewing for many, many years and I would take notes and you know talk at them away and 
several job changes uh, didn't allow me to actually bring this into print until just recently. And so I'm just so delighted to finally, uh, you know, it's like having your first baby. This is my first book, and I love it. <laughs> well, why are you passionate about this topic in particular? Does it really matter how science and religion are viewed? Yeah, you know, history is used in culture wars as a way to say, well, you know, if you want to be on the right side of history, you need to know that Christianity has all along been a hindrance to science. And so any kind of, uh, you know, if a scientist happens to be religious today, well, then, oh, they must just be religiously motivated and you can't trust anything they say. Well, uh, of course, philosophically, that's, uh, you know, attacking the person. You need to still look at their argument. But if there were a cultural background of a bad track record between Christianity and science, well, that would say something. And, uh, you know, it could have implications. But it turns out that that story is false. Um, so the overall myth I'm debunking is the warfare myth between science and Christianity. But there's some specific myths that actually contribute to that overall warfare thesis, and that's where I do the real hard work. Wow. It is so important to look back and see where things began, and not enough people do that today, so I'm hoping your book will help them. Well, in other episodes, we'll go into more depth about how you shatter each myth. But today, I thought I, maybe I could just ask you to give a brief rundown of each of the seven myths that you tackle. Let's start with myth number one. Bigger is better. Can you explain what that's about? Yeah, so you, you often hear that, well, a huge universe counts against the likely truth of Christianity, you know, because if, if the universe is really big, that means we're really small and insignificant in comparison to the vastness of the cosmos. And there's a long history to this argument. And so what I do is first I show how early scientists who also happen to be Christians had good reasons to believe in a huge universe, and they also believed in God. They saw no conflict whatsoever. But later on, people read back into the past this idea that, well, if, you know, once we discovered that the universe was big, then that counted against Christianity. So that sort of thing, that's the big myth. Myth number two is Idiots in the Dark, a provocative title. Yeah, and the idiots, you know, the old whipping boy, the Christians, they were the ones in charge during the Middle Ages, right? Uh, and the traditional term, the pejorative term for the Middle Ages is the Dark Ages. Sounds sinister, yeah. doesn't it, Andrew? It really does. <laughs> where where yeah, no, the, the, no enlightenment occurred, no intelligence prospered, the lights were yeah. out. <laughs> the thought police were darkening the world, and they were Christians. So the story goes. But when you actually look at the Middle Ages in detail, and I'm, I must say, I'm quoting the top historians of science who, who specialize in the Middle Ages. Many of them have no particular religious identity in their own life, but they know that history shows that there was an overall fairly congenial relationship between uh, medieval Christian thought and uh, the development of science. And, uh, you know, a few hiccups along the road, uh, but of course those often were for very particular historical reasons, not any generic science versus religion uh, thesis. So, yeah, I think once you get the, the facts on the Middle Ages, you'll find some very interesting things that uh, some of the early methodology of science was worked out during the Middle Ages. Not so dark yeah. after all. And it's important to note that, that even non-Christian philosophers and historians are, are coming to that acknowledgement. Myth number three, you point out as flat earthers. Tell us more. 
that is a kind of an expansion of the of the previous myth. That that's the most pernicious and enduring example of the the Dark Ages myth. And I so I devote an entire chapter to it. I'll just give you one example of the way it's displayed. You'll you'll hear well when finally in 1492 when you know who sailed the blue Columbus and well he's the one that showed the Earth was round by actually sailing around. Uh, enough to you know realize he ran into another landmass that he hadn't expected and so on. But the the big controversy at that time was really not over the shape of the Earth. It was over the size of the Earth, and there were different opinions, legitimately so, about how big this globe was. But they knew it was round, and the sailors were more worried about dying of uh, of uh, vitamin D de- uh, deficiency than than falling off the the face of the Earth uh, or the edge of the Earth. Sure. So and. And in the university curriculum, there was plenty of observation-based arguments for the, the sphericity of the Earth, or the roundness of the Earth. And medieval students typically knew that quite well. So, yeah, not so dark, huh? No. Well, in myth number four, you go on to talk about Giordano Bruno. Was he a martyr for science? Well, if you go to Rome, you'll see his statue and he has this kind of scowl on his face, and he faces the Vatican a few blocks away, uh, you might think so, that you know, he, here is the icon of what Christianity has meant for science. They killed the scientists, you know, the, the really bright ones, or, or at least you know, something like that. Well, it turns out that, yeah, he was uh, executed, and it was for his ideas. And so the book makes it very clear, obviously, Killing people for their ideas is not a good idea, so that was uh, not... But he wasn't martyred for science. He, he was more a martyr for free speech, really, uh, legitimately so. But uh, it was his philosophical and theological ideas that were really at issue. Now, there were some scientific ideas that were connected or related to that, that were, but it was really the, 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 science, the philosophy and the theology that was at issue. And mm. I explain in detail... And there's a really interesting history to ideas about extraterrestrial life because that was one of the issues that was related to his execution. Uh, and, and, and the ET myth, or excuse me, the, the extraterrestrial theme pops up several places in my book and kind of helps unify several of these myths, especially the last one. But we're not there yet, are we, Andrew? Wow. No, not quite. Because then you go on to Galileo and whether the church kind of shut him down as far as being able to conduct his scientific work and express his ideas, uh, you go into detail with that one. Yeah, but I show that there's some actually surprising lessons that we can learn, uh, both scientists and theologians, from Galileo's life and especially his trial. And not all of them are what you think. Um, There were a number of theologians who actually understood quite well the philosophy of science, and how it relates to the Bible. And Galileo was actually quite savvy on uh, the Bible himself and principles of interpretation of the Bible in relation to how it uh, would connect with science. So there was no bad guy versus good guy, you know, Galileo the scientist versus the church. There were church officials that were for Galileo, and there were, of course, the majority that were against him eventually. But it wasn't really science versus religion. It was different scientists (laughs) against other scientists and different theologians against other theologians. So it was really messy. And yeah, it turned out to be embarrassing to the Catholic Church, but it wasn't what you're told that it was, well, this shows you that science and religion just don't 
play well together. That's not true. That's a myth. The sixth myth that you tackle in your book is called Copernican demotion. Uh, Copernicus uh, supposedly demoted humans from the privileged center of the universe and thereby challenged religious doctrines about human importance. What did you discover with him? Well, Copernicus did come up with a theory that showed some evidence that the Earth moves around the sun, that the sun is at the center and not the Earth. And later people read back into that that, well, that was a demotion for Earth and for humans on it because we were no longer in the center. But if you go back to the cultural backdrop to Copernicus, it was broadly understood at the time of Copernicus and from the ancient world all the way up to him that the center of the universe was actually the bottom of the universe, the place where things fall, not the place of honor, up, away from the center. That's the place of privilege in this ancient cosmology that that uh, made its way all the way through the Middle Ages into the time of Copernicus. So when you understand that, then it makes sense that many Copernicans, including Copernicus himself and Galileo and Kepler, actually framed this change as a promotion for Earth, not a demotion. And I give plenty of uh, textual evidence to show that's the case. So, and then there's a longer story that weaves its way through the textbooks, because I have a sample of 130 textbooks uh, spanning four centuries showing the, the history of this when there was no myth and then when the myth got into the textbooks and how it, it's still in the textbooks today, currently used in astronomy education in universities. And I could, I could have said that for the other myths. I, I trace the history of these myths up to the present time and how they currently impact teaching. And that's part of the, the new kind of spin on my book that no one has done before. So sure. it's been fun, Andrew. Sounds like you've turned that one in particular on its head for sure. You close your myth section with the seventh myth, extraterrestrial enlightenment. So ET, uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, now that's the futuristic myth. So in my title, you know, you've got the history and the future of science and religion, myths about this history and future. So, but it turns out that this seventh myth is related to the, some of the six historic myths that we just covered. Uh, E.T. pops up especially in the Bruno story. Um, yeah, he, he thought that extraterrestrial life was out there. and he, he had basically religious reasons for it and some philosophical reasons. Uh, and there was a variety of opinion within the church about that topic. But there are many people today that want to frame the possibility of E.T. as like the ultimate religion pillar, especially they target Christianity because of the idea of the incarnation of God in Christ in human flesh, a very Earth-specific narrative. So here's the myth. Now, this is a different sense of myth. This is not just something that you can document as false, like I did in the first six myths. This is myth in the worldview-shaping sense. That is a story that influences the way people interpret the world. And this is about our future. And it goes like this, that when E.T. arrives, or if it arrives, depending on who you're talking to, that in order to make the trip, they would have to have such advanced technology and have evolved through billions of years to, or millions of years to get there, that when they arrived, they would have godlike superintelligence, technology indistinguishable from magic, and be morally superior to us, and it would trigger global religious reorientation. Now, how's that for a whopper, Andrew? Wow. 
there, there's elements to it that sound scientific, but the story really isn't. And the Copernican myth that we just covered, it gets um, kind of like, well, you know, we're used to saying that we're demoted, but hey, there's actually a promotion coming. It's from E.T. And there's also an artificial intelligence component to this myth, but I'll tell you about that later. That's so interesting. I'm really looking forward to reading that part of the book. Well, in your book, you talk about two different kinds of myths, and I wondered if you could just uh, lay that out very briefly for us. Uh, the first myth, of course, the first idea of, or meaning is just as a false story. Uh, but then right. you, you say there's a, a, another um, idea of myth as an imaginative archetypal story that shapes a culture's identity and dominant worldview. Is, are, is that the meaning of myth that's in play with some of these? Yep, with this, particularly with the seventh myth. Also, this broader sort of anthropological uh, meaning of myth, you know, what, what mythologists study. Some of these historic myths are used to kind of convey, uh, like I say, the larger warfare thesis that science and God just don't mix well. That is a uh, myth in the, in the anthropological sense or this imaginative worldview-shaping sense of, well, science and religion just don't get along. Um, but in the seventh myth in my book, what I do is show that this E.T. myth, it, it, the myth is not that E.T. exists. No one actually knows whether E.T. exists. That's not the myth. The myth is the expectation that E.T. contact will, will totally reorient our basic ideas in philosophy and religion necessarily and then, and then it will count against traditional religion. Mm. Um, and, and there's top philosophers and scientists who are saying this. I was shocked by how many just swallowed this, because when you look at the details, there's really not a good, good case for it. Huh. So, but it's great storytelling. You know, a lot of people are looking for a narrative to shape their view of the world. Hey, this, this looks attractive to a lot of people. Sure. Yeah, I was I was going to touch on that also. I mean, we can talk about that in other episodes. But you you do mention in your intro that that scientists do love a good story uh, because yep. because they themselves feel like they need to explain it in a way they can understand, but also they want to share it in a way that they think makes sense. But therein lies the difficulty, huh? Yep. I mean, all humans are inherently storytellers. We want to. We, we perceive our own lives as if it's going along a meaningful trajectory, and then corporately, humanity and, and different cultures and history. So, you know, it's, it's not, uh, you know, we're all uh, kind of seemingly wired that way, um, but the question is, is it a legitimate story? Does, is there a good, are there good reasons to believe in this story? And that's, that's where the devil's in the details, Andrew. Well, this has been a fascinating little introduction here, and I hope that you um, will join us again for, for more episodes where you go into more detail. Mike, thanks for taking the time today to give us a first look here. It's been fun, uh, Andrew, and uh, thanks for your great questions. Yeah, no worries. Well, we invite you to get, you, the listener that is, to get your copy of the new book, Unbelievable, by Michael Keyes, by inquiring at your favorite bookstore or ordering online. For more episodes of ID the Future, visit idthefuture.com or connect through your favorite podcast app. For ID the Future, I'm Andrew McDermott. Thanks for listening. This program was recorded by Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. ID the Future is copyright Discovery Institute. For more information, visit intelligentdesign.org and idthefuture.com.